This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, who's our card for this week? Matt, this week we have two cards. All right. Tony Pena, catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, had two cards in the 1988 Tops set. His card was number 410. However, he was also included on the Cardinals leaders card. Tony Pena was pictured alongside Red Shandienst, Cardinals legend second baseman, on the Cardinals leaders card, the back of which includes 1987 team leaders in different statistical categories. I think this might be our first team leaders card. Yes, it is. It's card number 351 in the set. And we'll talk about that one a little later in the show, but let's start with pulling up 410. We've got Tony, basically a headshot type of style with a big smile, got his batting helmet on. Also some prominent gold teeth in this picture. <laughs> it's true. If you zoom in on there, his two front teeth are, are brilliantly golden. Uh, it's got a mustache and the makings of a goatee and what kind of looks like a warm-up jersey. Bright Cardinals red. Looks like maybe a spring training shot. This was Tony's first year with the Cardinals. We'll get to it a little bit later, but at first Tony was not happy to be traded from the Pirates to the Cardinals, but... Looks like by spring training, happy to be with a team that is in the ascendancy, and that Cardinals team ends up making some noise and making it all the way to the World Series. Great. So flipping to flipping to the back of the card, Tony, again, a catcher, six feet tall, 184, right-handed batter and thrower, signed by the Pirates in 1975 as a free agent, Originally from Monte Cristi, Dominican Republic. Tony's from Palo Verde, which is a small town in the province of Monte Cristi in the Dominican Republic. Listeners of this podcast will remember that Monte Cristi, Dominican Republic has an airport named for Ozzie Virgil Sr., also the hometown of that trailblazer. So this is a, a very small town in the Dominican Republic, and Tony's father was a farmer. His mother was a teacher. You know, the family lived on only a few dollars a week. There were five kids, four boys and one girl. And they lived in a small home with dirt floors. So Tony grew up in pretty extreme poverty, and his brothers shared a room uh, that's about the size of a walk-in closet. Two of those brothers ended up making it to the big leagues. Tony's future wife, Amaris, grew up a few doors down from them in Palo Verde. Tony's mother's name was Rosalia, and she taught the the children baseball. She was a, a softball star in her younger days, and Tony said that she would pitch to them and that facing her pitching was like facing Nolan Ryan. <laughs> so Tony must have learned his catching skills from catching his softball star mother's pitches. His father often was away working in the fields, and so the children played baseball with their mother. But Rosalia, because she was a teacher, had hoped that Tony would continue with his education and wouldn't kind of waste his time chasing a dream of baseball, which was maybe a faraway dream for kids in the Dominican Republic in the 1960s. However, Tony was really good and caught the attention of a pirate scout. He you know, hitchhiked his way to a, an open tryout for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Of the 50 players who tried out, he was the only one that the Pirates were interested in signing. However, Rosalia refused <laughs> and told him, no, this is, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to go to America. You're going to fail at this 
kind of crazy dream. Basically, Tony told his mom, if I don't make it after the first year, if I fail, I'll come home and I'll go to school. So he signs in 1975, as you said, and doesn't have a strong start. Hits only 224, but the Pirates kind of gave him a second chance. And so he went back home to Dominican Republic. He ran up and down the stairs at a church to get his stamina up where in his first year he had been a catcher, a first baseman, a third baseman. He practiced his distinctive catching stance, and he kind of carved out a niche as a catcher by practicing the stance. And the stance is something that Tony is known for. Matt, as a Pirates fan, do you remember Tony Pena as a Pirate? Yeah, I do. I mean, he was he was traded when I was 10, but I remember that stance and him always looking like he was shifting. Unfortunately, it's not shown on either of the cards that we have here, but this stance that Tony had, which is basically one knee on the ground with the other leg kind of splayed out. And particularly when Tony would do this when no one was on base. So so he'd get really low to the ground, almost on the ground, sitting on his leg. And this allowed him to better frame low pitches. What's the downside of being on the ground is less mobility side to side to block pitches that are in the dirt. If no one is on base and it doesn't matter, there's no risk of a wild pitch. You can't be out of position to throw someone out. And so it really ends up making a big difference for catching the pitcher. And then also the crouch itself is an extremely painful thing. It is not good for you. (laughs) It's not good for your knees to get in and out of a crouch that much. Yeah, much less wear and tear on on Tony's knees. Always a problem for catchers dealing with knee problems. You know, we see Tony Pena played until he was 40 years old regularly as a catcher. And we've seen this gaining popularity recently. Particularly, there's a catcher named Mitch Garver who plays for the Twins. And an interesting article I found showed that he started doing this one knee stance for every pitch regardless of if anybody's on base. Back in the 80s for Tony, a lot more teams stealing bases, so more need to throw out base runners. And Tony was really good at that too. You know, had a a very high caught stealing percentage. Mitch Garver does this one knee down stance, and he saw his called strikes in the bottom of the zone went from 33% in 2018, before he started doing this, to 57.8% in 2019. Part of that, I think, is You can watch the catcher, when he's starting so low, he's actually moving his glove up to catch pitches that are low in the zone. And I think it's deceptive for the umpire standing behind him versus a guy in a crouch who's moving his glove down all the time. And and it's harder to tell where the, the glove is going. You know, here he is 18 and 19 years old after his first year with the Pirates, and he's coming home and saying, I need to find an advantage. I need to find a way to get into this team. Pirates are ready to give up on him, and he decides, no, I'm going to dig into just being a catcher. I'm going to try to find a way to separate myself and give myself an advantage. So I think it tells a lot about him as a player wanting to try to do his best. And that leads us into his his next stop was in uh, Buffalo, New York. So he saw that this the stadium in Buffalo, New York, had a short right field fence. So he practiced hitting to the opposite field, and he ends up hitting 34 home runs in 1979 with a 313 average. If you look at the stats on his card, never really replicating that much power, but being able to get noticed, figure out a way to get noticed, that hitting prowess and you know maybe being able to just slap a hit to one direction or another, or slap a hit to the opposite field is an incredibly useful tool. 
1980, he hits 327 in AAA. So clearly the Pirates are noticing, and he gets a late season call up in 1980, plays in eight games, and hits 429 for the Pirates. And then that performance at the end of 1980, I guess it was so impressive that the Pirates traded away one of their best catchers. Yes, the Pirates traded away Ed Ott, who had played catcher for the 1979 World Series champions. Going into 1981, Tony and Steve Nicosia were supposed to split starting time at catcher. That season ended up strike-shortened, but as we see on the card, Tony hit 366 games and finished 6th in Rookie of the Year voting. I kind of thought about how to do these Pirates years because the Pirates weren't very good. Tony kind of had similar seasons. Hits between... 286 and 300, 10 to 15 home runs, makes an all-star game, wins a gold glove. Well, that's the way to say it. I mean, I think that's the way to say it. (laughs) Yeah, so Tony was often a very good catcher on a very bad Pirates team, and he called 1985 the lowest point of his career. The Pirates went 57 and 104. As you'll recall from a previous episode, this is the year of the Pittsburgh drug trials. Tony said it was no fun. He just said, I'm not a loser, and he did not like being on a losing team. In his seven seasons in Pittsburgh, he hit 286, won three gold gloves, four all-star games. He also had some pretty decent speed for a catcher, oftentimes getting a few triples in the 10 to 12 steals range, so pretty decent. I just recall him being a heads-up runner, so being someone who was maybe not the fastest, but was very aware and had a lot of smarts on the base path that definitely tracks with tony as a player and later as a coach and manager as we said before tony's defense was very good he had a a really good arm consistently near the top of the national league rankings in percentage caught stealing also on the leaderboard for fielding percentage and having a generally a good command of the pitching staff and a knowledge of opposing hitters so boy he is so just a great catcher great person to have on your team a real rock you know four-time all-star and therefore a valuable piece to trade away and so in 1987 as we see in the this way to the clubhouse the fun fact at the bottom of the card is uh, that he was traded by the pirates to the cardinals for mike dunn Mike Lavalier and Andy Van Slyke on April 1st, 1987. You know, in the Andy Van Slyke episode, as we talked about earlier this season, this is a huge trade for all of the players that we just listed. Uh, Andy Van Slyke coming in and becoming a, a rock in the in center field eventually for the Pirates. Mike Dunn, who ends up having one good season, and then we ended up talking about last week. Uh, Getting traded for Ray Quinones. And then Mike Lavalier, who ended up being the steady catcher for the Pirates for several seasons after this. Lavalier ends up coming in in 1987 and winning a gold glove. So replacing one gold glove catcher with another looks like a decent trade for the Pirates to give up their their rock. Jim Leland said, we've traded the best and most durable catcher in baseball. Tony was not happy about this. He said he cried for a week and the trade hurt him psychologically, that he lost his stroke. But he was going to a good team. The Cardinals were coming off of a down season in 1986, but in 1985 had lost the World Series. So this is a good team with Willie McGee, Vince Coleman, a good pitching staff that Tony's going to command. And I suppose as we see on on the card, 
the stats do not really line up with his time with the Pirates. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's kind of shocking. You know, 116 games played and a 214 average. I mean, it's almost like, David, it's almost like he went to St. Louis and he couldn't see anymore or something. Yes, it is. Turn, it, turns it, out. <laughs> turns out. <laughs> Up to June 30th of 1987, Tony was hitting 276. For the rest of the season, he hit 180. And mm. I found this New York Times article, which is one of those sign of the times kind of articles. It turns out that Tony needed glasses. Oh my gosh. <laughs> which, how in the world could a guy who's getting paid this much money not know that he needs glasses? It ended up being, he just said he didn't think he needed them. The last week of the season, he finally got glasses. The playoffs come around. Tony puts in a very good display. He hit three eight. Tony hit three eighty one in the NLCS. Yeah, well, those glasses made a huge difference. I mean, if you can't see, there are a lot of folks that if their eyesight is declining over time and they don't notice and they get by, it's fine until one night you're driving home and you realize, oh, I can't read what the street signs say. One of the things was he wasn't able to see pitches at night the way that he had previously been able to. And so, yeah, what a what an amazing turnaround. Matt, you can see a, a picture of Tony with his giant rimmed glasses, very beautiful. 1980s. The Cardinals go into the playoffs in 1987 against the San Francisco Giants. Tony hits 381 in the NLCS. He also had a very good play at the plate, tagging out Hackman in Game 4. There's a good picture of this. It definitely looked like Hackman went high on, uh, on Tony rather than go for the plate. So that's where one flap down goes against one knee down. Yes. And Tony, it looked like, almost went for a slap in the face of, of Hackman. He also <laughs> hit a triple. This goes back to Tony and his heads-up base running. He hit a fly ball that was misplayed by Candy Maldonado, and Tony turns that into a triple and ends up scoring the only run of Game 6. That game also had to be stopped on a few occasions because of objects thrown by Cardinals fans at Hackman. <laughs> Stay classy, St. Louis. Best fans in baseball. Best fans in baseball. <laughs> Tony goes on to the World Series. In a losing effort, he hit 409. So a really great hitting performance. He ends up getting hits in 12 of the 14 games of that of that 1987 playoffs. So do not let one year's stats of regular season tell the whole story there's a lot more to it as we see and so this performance in the playoffs in addition to all of his great feats earned tony a place in rbi baseball so let's go now to the rbi baseball corner with our correspondent brian brian welcome back to the show this week we're talking about tony pena Tell us about this Cardinals team in RBI baseball. So as we talked about a little bit on the Charlie Kerfeld episode, there's 10 teams in RBI baseball, and eight of them can be thought of as slugging teams. And then you have the two teams that like to manufacture runs, St. Louis and Houston. And of those two, St. Louis is definitely the superior team. They're better than Houston. They have dangerous speed at many spots. Vince Coleman is the fastest player in the game. Ozzie Smith is the fourth fastest player in the game. They also have a lot of left-handed batters. Their lineup has six out of eight of the batters are lefties. So if you hit well with lefties, St. Louis is a good team to use. They have a great starting pitcher in John Tudor. So the strategy with St. Louis is to manufacture runs 
use speed to your advantage, whether stealing bases or especially taking extra bases on hits, forcing throws, and then having John Tudor pitch really deep into the game. That does line up with the 1987 Cardinals. You know, Vince Coleman had a 109 steals on that team, and the team actually led the majors in stolen bases with 248. So, and that was 50 more steals than the next best team. Of course, Whitey Herzog and Whitey Ball focused on running and situational play. So Tony Pena, not one of the base stealers, how does he fit into this lineup? Tony Pena is the number eight hitter and the catcher for the Cardinals. He's actually one of only two righties in the St. Louis lineup. And I think of St. Louis as having two pods of four players. So you have your one through four batters, which starts with the fastest guy, another really fast guy, a guy who's kind of meh and can maybe be subbed out, and all of those are lefties, and then you have the next hitter who's a righty with some pop. For the first four batters of the lineup, it follows a rhythm of really good players. Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, both extremely fast. Tommy Herr, who's okay, can probably be subbed out, and then Jack Clark, who has a lot of power. For the last four batters in the lineup, Tony Pena is that right-handed anchor. He doesn't have too much power, but he has more power than Billy McGee, Tony Pendleton, Ford, and the players who precede him. His on-screen stats in RBI baseball are actually not taken from the 1987 season. His 87 season, he only had 214 with five homers, which was not good. His stats on the screen in RBI baseball, 286 and 10 homers. Now, on-screen stats don't necessarily correlate with actual playing attributes, but nevertheless, it just visually it looks like this guy has power if he has 20 home runs on the screen. In some cases, they take stats from other seasons, like Tony Armas, for instance, for the Boston Red Sox. It shows him with 43 home runs. He had that in 1984. He certainly didn't in 1986. And then for the Cardinals, John Tudor is shown as having a 128 ERA in RBI baseball. And if a starting pitcher had a 128 ERA for a full season, that would be pretty remarkable. That was never the case with John Tudor. Now, with Tony Pena, you know, in RBI baseball, you get no credit for defensive attributes. So, unfortunately, Tony Pena, one of his great strengths was controlling the running game. That's actually pretty important in RBI baseball if you're playing a team that steals a lot of bases. But you could have anybody behind the plate. If you sub Tony Pena out and brought somebody else in, it wouldn't make a difference in terms of your ability to throw out runners. Unfortunately, you also don't get the most distinctive aspect of Tony Pena, that catcher's stance behind the plate. When I think back to him, I always think back of him as a shapeshifter kind of like the jellyfish catcher, Tony Pena, moving his legs around in different squats. And in RBI baseball, he just looks like any old squatty RBI player. He's kind of uh, short and stout. So much like Tom Hankey, who we covered, we didn't get his glasses in the game. We don't, don't get Tony Pena's squat. I guess we do get Charlie Kerfeld in Juan Berenguer's girth, though, by virtue of the way <laughs> the standard players are arranged. In terms of his actual qualities as a player... He's a pretty average player. He has good power for a Cardinal. He has the second most power among all the Cardinal starters behind him with Jack Clark. He's also tied with Jack Clark for being the slowest Cardinal. But that's not to say that he has good power overall. So he's second in the Cardinals lineup in terms of his power, third on the team overall. But if he were on the Angels, he would actually be 11th. So it's pretty relative. You know, on the Cardinals, they have a lot of players with speed, not a lot of power. So Tony Pena can at least pop off for a home run every now and then. So... Th- for the player going back to play RBI baseball now, is he worth keeping in the lineup or is there someone better on the bench to sub him in for? I'd keep him in. There is someone better on the bench, um, Jim Lindemann in particular. I was playing a game of RBI baseball with the Cardinals against the Tigers before this podcast and Jim Lindemann was my star player. He ended up with two home runs and a double 
And if you look at his on-screen stats, he doesn't have any good hitting attributes, but he actually has a ton of power, second most only behind Jack Clark. But there are worse players than Tony Pena in the Cardinals lineup, so you're better off putting in Jim Lindemann for Ford or her and keeping Tony Pena in the game. Well, thank you for doing a sample game. Well, that dedication to the preparation is, is what makes you such a valuable member of our squad. Thanks, Brian. So we're back from the RBI Baseball Corner, and David now shifting to Tony's later career with the Cardinals after 1987. He played in two more seasons in St. Louis, 88 and 89. How did those go? So his hitting improved in 1988 and 89. In those seasons, he hit 263 and 259. I guess you can't really get much worse than his 214 1987 <laughs> average. He also ranked first in fielding among National League catchers in both of those seasons. And he made an all-star game in 1989. After 1989, he ends up signing as a free agent with the Red Sox and makes an impact right away. The team ERA uh, drops by 29 points. They go from 10th in the American League to 4th in the American League in ERA. The Red Sox win the American League East that year. Tony even gets some MVP votes. So we're really seeing Tony as as a leader and as a as a key player Tony already had this reputation as a leader he would you know yell at infielders to keep them in position he was uh, commanding of his pitching staff and got his pitching staff in line and he comes into the Red Sox as an established veteran somebody with a reputation from the National League but now comes into the American League and there's some big personalities in Boston Roger Clemens is one of them and one story that I read was that Tony was catching Roger Clemens, and Clemens was a little bit off. He's a little bit wild. Basically, Tony just calls timeout. The manager of the Red Sox comes out of the dugout, and Tony waves him off and says, go back to the dugout. Tony goes to the mound, screaming obscenities at Roger Clemens. <laughs> Roger Clemens, not known as a shrinking violet, takes it, takes all of the obscenities, all of the screaming, collects himself, and finishes out the game pitches a gem, and basically Tony would just get people in line. He ends up playing four seasons in Boston, uh, wins another gold glove, but his average kind of drops off. By the end, he's 36 years old, and in 1993, he hit 181. So unclear if, if it's the end for him, and he gets a call from the Indians. You know, 36 is an old, that's an old catcher. But as we talked about, you know, he was able to preserve a little bit of his knees from having some different stances for the first time in his career really called up to be a backup and came into the Indians team to back up Sandy Alomar Jr. And he played well in limited performances in 1994, hitting 295. And then in 1995, he ends up playing 90 plus games because Sandy Alomar was injured. So you have a 38 year old Tony Pena playing for this uh, very good Cleveland Indians team. It's just incredible. Like, 37 he's signing like we're still talking about his career all the way through here I, I think part of it was him being brought in to to help mold a pitching staff and with a winning team you need some character guys and Tony Pena is quite a character one biography described him as having quote quick and productive visits to the mound which I I guess I could call that Clemens visit quick and productive <laughs> another quick and productive visit was when he went to the mound because he thought Jose Mesa, 
was not paying attention. And in Tony's words, he, quote, hit him in the head. I've also seen it described as slapped him in the face with his glove. (laughs) Quick and productive. But that 1995 Indians team won the AL Central. And when Alomar came back from injury, Pena was a little bit limited, but had at least one shining moment in a 13th inning walk-off home run in game one of the American League Division Series against his old team, the Boston Red Sox. And this was the first Indians postseason victory since 1948. (laughs) (laughs) So 47-year drought he erases with a walk-off home run. Just a clutch player. What that is awesome, and it's still not over. It's still not over. So he's still after 1995, makes a couple more stops before retirement. I remember Tony Pena partially for these cards, but also because because he played for the White Sox for a minute, like very short trip to Chicago, 31 games in 1997. That same season, he also played in Houston for nine games. He was 40. And, <laughs> So I just remember this old guy coming in, and they're citing Tony Pena. And you're like, you're citing a 40 year old catcher. This is not, it's not something that a, a team with a lot of great prospects does. But David, as that wily 40 year old, he pulls a move in Houston that just shows that maybe his body is 40 years old, but his brain is spry. Tell me about this trick he pulls on Brian Johnson. So Brian Johnson is at the plate for the San Francisco Giants in 1997. I think that the count was either two and two or three and two. And Tony goes to the mound. There's a man on second and third. He's talking to the pitcher and he comes back to the plate and he signals for an intentional walk. So they maybe throw another ball. So it goes to a full count. And then Tony again signaling for an intentional walk. As the pitcher winds up to throw, Tony goes back into his crouch, and the pitcher throws a strike to strike out Brian Johnson looking. <laughs> Love it. Love it. It's like the hidden ball trick for catchers. That and this is... was not the first time he had done this. He, had, he did this before to John Olerud. Oh, I love that so much. That is the kind of trickery we love here on the 1988 Tops podcast. Now, that kind of thinking. So he does end up retiring. Uh, at that point, at 40 years old. And you got to think that with a mind for baseball like that, David, that naturally he would want to get into coaching and be pretty good at it. Yes. So Tony gets into coaching. He manages some minor league teams, manages in the Dominican Republic, and in 2002 is hired on to manage the Royals. The next season, he managed them to their first 500-plus season since 1994 and was the American League Manager of the Year. So he can clearly get something out of a team that maybe not a lot is expected of. However, that team was overperforming in 2003, and they really could not replicate their over 500 performance. They lost 104 games in 2004. As we know, Tony does not like losing. He resigned in 2005. He didn't leave necessarily on bad terms, and I think everybody in Kansas City knew that he was working with limited resources. He ends up going to the Yankees, and he was with the Yankees from 2006 to 2017 as a first base coach, catching instructor, bench coach, and also managed the Dominican Republic World Baseball Classic team in 2013 and 2017. That Dominican Republic baseball team 
was loaded with stars in 2013 and won the tournament going 8-0 in the tournament. They didn't lose a game, won the final over Puerto Rico. So Tony won that, that championship for his homeland. I tried to figure out where Tony is at right now because he seems like a guy who's a good motivator, has some coaching experience, has some connections to Latin American players, and I haven't seen his name pop up to coach for any coaching vacancies recently. And with, you know, the White Sox going back to the well of Tony La Russa, I, I wonder why Tony Pena does not get a get an interview there, whether or not he's gotten interviews for some of the different positions. I, you know, he, at one point he was considered for Boston's job and the Yankees job, but didn't get either of those. So I hope that Tony gets a, another chance at coaching someday. Now, David, as we, before we close the book on Tony, we have to deal with the other card, card 351, the team leader card that almost inexplicably has for the team leader card has two people on it. Um, one of whom is Tony Pena, a guy who's hitting 213 and another guy who looks like he's the grandpa of the guy. <laughs> so yes. tell us about what's going on with this card. I had exactly the same thought, you know, comparing some of these team leader cards in 1988, the Oakland A's team leader card had Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco on it. Yeah. You team know leaders. exactly what you're getting there. Team leaders. <laughs> uh, this card has two guys whose names are not listed in any category on the back. When I think of the 1987 St. Louis Cardinals, I think of Ozzie Smith, Jack Clark, those guys are on the back of this card. Willie McGee, Vince Coleman, they led the team in hitting categories. Todd Worrell led the team in saves. You have some some great players on a team that went to the World Series. This card, however, has Tony Pena and Red Shandienst. Uh Matt, I Red don't know Shandienst. how... Red Shandienst. I don't know how up on your St. Louis Cardinals history you are. But Red Shandienst is St. Louis Cardinals history. He spent 76 years in baseball. 67 of them were with the St. Louis Cardinals. (laughs) He was part of World Series teams as a player, as a coach, as a, what was his, his last position was as a special assistant coach. He served in that position until 2018. He was 95 years old and still with the Cardinals organization. I bring this up because I... I at first looked at this and thought, like, this doesn't really make any sense. That's not Whitey Herzog. But in learning more about both Tony Pena and Red Shandienst, it makes sense that they are Cardinals leaders. Tony steps into the team, becomes a leader, commanding the pitching staff, being kind of a rock in defense for a couple seasons, maybe not being the offensive player that the Cardinals needed in the regular season, but coming up big in the playoffs and World Series. Red Shandienst is the kind of lifeblood of the of the Cardinals for so many years. In reading an interesting obituary of Red, who passed away in 2018, talks about the meaning of his name. 1988 Tops Podcast is your number one source for German last name etymology. <laughs> the word um, Schön is beautiful, and Dienst is service or duty. And so mm. Red Shandienst last name means beautiful service. And that is what Mm. he gave to the Cardinals for so many years. But in also reading his biography, Red is from Germantown, Illinois. 
which is about 40 miles from St. Louis on the Illinois side. His father was a coal miner. His family had no electricity or running water when he grew up. And Red is similar to Tony in that sense. They both grew up dirt poor. At age 16, he dropped out of school to join the Civilian Conservation Corps. While doing so, he was building a fence and caught a nail in the eye and almost lost Mm. his eye. It forced him to pick up switch hitting. So similar to Tony, he's uh, adapting, also has some vision problems. He also, like Tony, hitched a ride to an open tryout with the Cardinals. He had a, a quarter in his pocket, I read, and hitchhiked to St. Louis to try out with 400 other guys. He didn't make the team, but the scout changed his mind and offered him $75 a month. Basically, he never left the Cardinals after that. Now, I say never left. He, he was traded a couple times, but came back to the Cardinals organization. So, as I said, beautiful service. He went on to, to be a manager of the Cardinals and just a longtime servant of the Cardinals organization, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1989. You know, he connected generations of Cardinals, of St. Louis Cardinals and their fans. And so to have him on this card with kind of the new guy coming in and this new leader, I thought after learning more about both of them was a fitting tribute to both of them. And, you know, you said he's, I think he was probably in his 60s here, but man, he looks a lot (laughs) older than that. But yeah, you know, Red when he passed away, was the oldest living Hall of Famer. And one quote I read was that Red was the best of all of us. So, you know, it doesn't seem like any player or other coach had anything bad to say about Red. Uh, A real leader and a real Cardinals legend. Well, it does make sense that they're together. Um, Pena in Spanish means rock. So you can see a lot how Tony Pena lived up to to the meaning of his name of being a rock of this team. But as we close the book on him, David, he was also a rock to his family and to his hometown. Yes, there is uh, what is, I think, commonly just known as the the Tony Pena story by Joe Pasnansky, who was with the uh, Kansas City Star. He wrote this story in 2003. He went back with Tony to his hometown and they drove around and they Tony showed him his childhood home and there's a lady who lives in his childhood home and Tony just allows her to live there but told her that she can't change anything there <laughs> that he wants it to to be as it was when when he was growing up but he's a philanthropist and kind of a local hero and a local legend he, you know this is a guy who started from nothing and made over 17 million dollars in major league baseball he's the richest man in town he owns a farm and i don't it seemed like he didn't make any money off of it but has people there to work who need to work he owns a a bottled water company to distribute clean bottled water to people in his in his town but there's this one story that kind of tells you about his beginnings and and the kind of person that he is in 1975 he signed with the pirates and received a four thousand dollar bonus His town didn't have a bank that could cash that check, so he had to go to another town to cash it. When he got that money, he tried to give it all to his parents, and they refused. They didn't believe that he was going to make it as a pro ball player, and they told him that he was going to need that money. Later that same week, his father had had not made payments on some furniture, and a company came to repossess the family's furniture. And Tony, true to form, tried to buy the furniture back from the repossessors, And his mother told the guys carrying away the furniture, 
don't take his money. His money's no good for you. He secretly bought the furniture back and had it delivered to them. And his mother was furious at him because she thought, this is your money that this is all the money that you're ever going to have. You're going to you're going to go to America and you're not going to make it. But he did. <laughs> and you know, we see this this led to what a 40 plus year career in in baseball and a lot of money. And he made it. And on one trip back to his hometown, he was driving his mother around this nice neighborhood. What he said was the nicest neighborhood in, in town and asked his mother what she thought about it. She told him these are beautiful houses. He pulls up to one and she says, this is the most beautiful house. And he handed her the key and just said, this is, <laughs> this is your house now. And he said, it's the greatest thing that a man can do is buy his mother a home. And she lived in that house until 2011 when she passed away. Mm. Uh, she lived long enough to see Tony's career. And he even said that she would give him tips when he was a pro and say, you can't hit that high fastball. Why are you swinging at that high fastball? Uh, <laughs> that $4,000 check, he spent $800 of that $4,000 check on furniture. There's a bank account in Santiago, Dominican Republic. In it is $3,200 plus a lot of interest, 40 plus years <laughs> of interest. That's the rest of the bonus money that Tony Pena got from the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1975. You know, nobody thought that this was this guy would make it, and and he did. So I, I guess to, to wrap up, you know, we've talked about three great baseball coaches here. Red Shandienst, Rosalia Pena, and Tony Pena. So cheers to all of them, and cheers to Tony Pena. Seems like a real good yes. dude. Without a doubt. Thank you, David, for that story. Thank you to Brian once again uh, for bringing us to RBI Baseball Corner. Thank you to someone with the username Aaron Judge, who on Facebook and in a five-star iTunes review, who suggested we talk about Tony Pena, so thank you. If you have not rated and reviewed the show, we would sure love if you did that. You can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, or your podcast listener of choice. We'll see you next week. <laughs>